Welcome to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro offers premium brain health coaching to clients globally, along with targeted neuromodulation services to clients interested in peak cognitive performance in the Miami Fort Lauderdale area. On the show with us today, we have a special guest, Greg Lawrence. Greg is a certified psychedelic integration coach a community integration circle facilitator and leader in the Los Angeles psychedelic community. He helps people make lasting changes by assisting them in integrating the insights and lessons gained during the psychedelic experience into their daily lives. So Greg, super happy to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Toby. So what was your sort of uh, introduction to this world of, of psychedelic work? And it sounds like now into psychedelic therapy. When oh, did you goodness. sort of start realizing that there is actually a, 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 a therapeutic uh, side to these, these, uh, these medicines? Well, it was through uh, personal experience, trial and error. Do you have a minute? Absolutely. All right. So um, I use psychedelics along with many other things in my late teens to late twenties. Unfortunately, in my late twenties, I got mixed up with hard drugs and my life kind of spiraled out of control. So I managed to extract myself from the physical location where I was, you know, cut off contact with the people I was associating with and just change my surroundings completely. And I stopped using all substances except for cannabis, which I abused for about 20 years. Moved to uh, San Fernando Valley out here, started living a suburban life, started a business, bought a house. And then seven years ago, my wife at the time passed away during the night unexpectedly. So uh, it turned my life upside down. And in the process, I realized that I had a lot of unresolved childhood trauma. So I started seeing a therapist. I was working with a coach. And at the time, I smoked cigarettes and I was trying to quit. And my coach said, uh, you know, there's a study that says the psilocybin helps with that. I hadn't used psychedelics for, you know, 25 years at that time. So I got some mushrooms. I took them. And instead of telling me about smoking, it showed me everything that had happened in my life so far all of the reasons I had the thoughts and habits and patterns that I was trying to get over, why I had taken certain actions. And I thought afterwards, well, now I know that. So everything's different. It's never going to go back to being the same. And in about three or four weeks, it went back to being the same. Tried that a couple more times and didn't understand why these insights weren't helping me to make changes in my life. They weren't motivating me. So I started searching around and I found the concept of psychedelic integration. I had no clue what that was studied it, found an integration circle near me. Those are safe spaces where people get together, discuss their experiences, lend support to one another, it's community building, people come and do research. And I became a regular at those. I dived into the world of integration and discovered that if I took the information I was given during the experience and proactively made some kind of change, then I would start changing. I couldn't wait to be motivated from the, motivated from the outside. So I was facilitating integration circles. I was doing energy work at the time. Apparently, I was coaching people because they were saying things like, hey, that thing you told me was really helpful. So I got certified as a coach, eventually as an integration coach. And I've been doing that full time for nearly three years now. And what did you sort of discover was needed in terms of 
uh, actually the components of integration in order to make a psychedelic experience have kind of those lasting benefits and result in, in those lasting positive changes that you're looking for? Well, there are times when someone will have a transformative experience and something will be different afterwards. They might make their bed every day, get along with people better, you know, not be so impatient in traffic. But far more often, people have an experience that feels transformative. It'll last for a while. They'll sort of be in the aftermath and sort of a pink cloud, we call it. And then with, you know, after uh, too long, they'll go back to what they were doing before. There's a lot of neuroplasticity that happens in the aftermath of a psychedelic experience. And sort of the guiding principle of my work came from a gentleman named Milton Erickson. Are you familiar with him? I am, yeah. One of the four therapists on whom the technology of neurolinguistic programming was founded on. He was a genius at working with people, psychiatrist, hypnotherapist. And he once said, change will lead to insight far more often than insight will lead to change. So in the psychedelic experience, there is some lesson or theme. There's always a lesson in the psychedelic experience. You know, the substance is the chef. The ingredients are our life experience. So we're sort of a co-author in this experience. And we come up with realizations. You know, I didn't realize that this was so hurtful to me, that I really want to do this so badly, that I want to change that. It's up to us in the aftermath of the experience. When we have this neuroplasticity and your brain is ready to make new neural pathways, habits, patterns, ways of being and thinking, and take action with those, usually by creating some new habit or pattern and maybe dropping one that's not serving us any longer. In doing that, we've actually made a change based on what we told ourselves during the experience. And we're not waiting to be motivated. We're not waiting till we feel like doing it because once the default mode network comes back online, once the mind chatter is going again, we have a million reasons not to make changes. You know, tomorrow is always a better day. But if we do it in the immediate aftermath, that's what I try to do with clients take the information they've given themselves and create some new way of being based on that. Could we go through kind of the different psychedelics that, that you found to be a helpful kind of in a, in a therapeutic way and kind of, uh, do they work in a similar way? Do they differ drug to drug? Um, for therapeutic use, I would primarily talk about psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic, magic mushrooms and MDMA which you know, a lot of people know as ecstasy. It's one of the ingredients in ecstasy anyway. So psilocybin will sort of give you a full psychedelic experience. It'll show you things in a way that you haven't seen. It'll quiet things down and let you see things from another perspective. It might do many things because psychedelics speak to us in a number of unusual novel ways. You know, we all have defenses built up against words. So if I don't feel I'm worthy of love, it doesn't matter how many people tell me that I am. I just don't hear it. It doesn't get through. So psychedelics don't just hold up a neon sign saying you're worthy of love because I have defenses built up against that. So they might play games or simulations. They might jolt us emotionally somehow. They might scare us. They might show us our lives from a third person perspective and give us a new view at it. It might just show us things differently. Sometimes people have strange uh, and to me profound realizations of things like I just realized there's not really a problem. It's the way I'm thinking about things. MDMA, on the other hand, is very useful for people. You know, it's currently being used by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They are in phase three of clinical trials using MDMA to treat treatment-resistant PTSD in veterans and first responders with a phenomenal success rate. If this phase of the trials goes well, then by 2022, 2023, most likely, MDMA-assisted therapy will be a prescribable treatment legal in the United States. 
MDMA works by sort of quieting down the fight or flight response that we have, which is why it's very good for PTSD. You know, it's hard for people with severe trauma to look at that trauma or they feel like they're back in the originating event. So MDMA helps us look at that trauma and realize that's something that happened over here and I'm now over here. I get a look at that so I can get some perspective. Now I can start talking about it. Now I can work on the subject material. Those are two of the primary substances you find used in the clinical trials for therapeutic purposes. So those couple substances, you know, people could definitely use, you know, uh, kind of on a wide array of different settings, you know, whether that just be recreational or, you know, therapeutic, or also I've seen, you know, or heard about kind of quasi-therapeutic, you know, we take it in small groups. Where, what do you find as far as like the best way to, to take one of these substances if you're looking to get kind of therapeutic benefits? You know, just about any setting can end up having a therapeutic effect on you when you're using these substances, but almost all of the clinical trials have people in eye shades so that they're cut off from the world visually and in headphones listening to music. Um, the reason for that is, well, it's manyfold, but say with music, you know, music has been shown to interact with psychedelics in a way that moves information from the part of the brain that stores personal memories to the part that creates pictures and movies. So it sort of makes an autobiographical picture of your memories and thoughts. With the eye shades, you know, we are comparison machines. You know, I'm looking around and especially if I'm on a psychedelic, like, oh, that looks like it's breathing and this thing's not like that. And I mean, what color is that thing? And who is that person? Where, you know, there are a million things going on. There's something like 25 subconscious processes going on just in you listening to the words that I'm saying right now and filing them away, contextualizing them, understanding them, comparing them to other things that you've heard. So we're very busy, even if we don't realize it, even when we're just looking at things in a room. Taking away the sensory, uh, the senses of hearing and sight helps you have an internal experience. So there's nothing out here anymore. Everything is the material that's inside my head. It catalyzes an internal experience to have this therapeutic or guided setting where you have music playing, possibly silence, and eye shades covering your eyes. Now, being in nature can be healing. Hanging out with friends, being in a ceremonial setting, all of those things can be very healing and very therapeutic. But when it comes to how we're doing this as far as getting someone to help them with their personal issues, a lot of times I will recommend or I will find that what they're doing is using the eye shades and headphones model. And that's for both when we're talking about psilocybin along with MDMA? Yeah, and it's strange, especially with MDMA, if you've ever taken it recreationally, and then you took it with eye shades and headphones, you might not know it's the same substance, because it is definitely a different experience. And with both of them, it's much more powerful when you take away those senses as well. Sometimes it feels like there's not much happening, but if you go inside, you'll find out there's a lot happening. So let's talk more about kind of what what is happening and what what you've sort of found in terms of what's happening, like, you know, when you do these sort of integration experiences as far as like what what is actually coming up for people during these these psychedelic experiences and and then can you kind of talk to me about how with proper integration that can result in in positive changes well what happens is hard to say it's different every time for every person people seem to come up with a material that's been, you know, you and I both right now are suppressing something that's very important to us. Something I think I need to do, something I'm bothered by, something that hurt me, something that I feel is necessary. And I just kind of put that away so I can go about my daily life and live like I do. 
Well, in this experience, that comes to the forefront. You, know, you now understand that this thing really bothers me. This situation, this pattern in my life is not something that's good for me. These boundaries I'm setting are not sufficient. This thing that happened in my past was very painful to me. This person is someone that's not good for me, or this person is someone who's very good for me. And at the same time, you might relive or see some of the memories from your life. You might come up with suppressed memories. You might see something in a different light where you had blamed yourself for a particular instance, uh, incident. And now you understand that you are not responsible for that. As far as what we do with this information, you know, sometimes we make new habits and patterns. Sometimes we evaluate situations or patterns in our lives. Sometimes we learn to set boundaries. Sometimes we find out whether or not our difficulty communicating in a situation like people might say, you know, I really can't stand this job anymore. Well, there are a lot of things that could be happening there. Maybe it's not the job for you anymore. Maybe there's a problem with your coworkers and the way they communicate. Maybe you don't like your boss. Maybe you're having trouble relating to people in certain situations. So before we decide what to do about a situation, we need to sort of dig in and find out what's really happening here. And from there, we can make decisions about how to go about making changes logically in a way that makes sense. It's not uh, rash. And it sounds like kind of from what you're saying, it's sort of like the psychedelics are helping to, to illuminate what the, the sort of details of the problem might actually be in terms of not being able to just hold back on a certain situation because you might not know how to cope with it or deal with it. Whereas the psychedelics kind of showing you, bringing to the surface what's, what's actually going on. Yeah, psychedelics are amplifiers of consciousness. So when someone talks about, you know, says something like, I have a very disturbing situation in my life right now, is this a good time? Well, there's a very good chance that that's going to come up during the experience. Whatever is happening for you, whatever is foremost on your mind, whatever's at the back of your mind is often illuminated by these substances because they amplify certain situations. They also amplify your reaction to things that are happening in real time sometimes. You know, in ceremonial settings, you might be very bothered by another person. That could be because they're a mirror Maybe they're showing you something that you do now that you're not really conscious of, but you want to be. Maybe they're showing you something that you used to do that you might have some shame or guilt around. Maybe they remind you of a person, place, time, or situation in which you felt unsafe before. But they tend to bring these things to light so we can see them, not ignore them anymore, and try to work them through. Greg, I wanted to, to ask you as far as with when people experience bad trips, bad experiences with psychedelics, what's going on there and what's different from from other people's experience, in which case this somewhat, you know, this, uh, what sounds like sometimes very difficult materials coming up, but they're able to actually kind of process it and work through it sounds like to get to a better place, but, but then some people seem to end up in a very bad place. So what's your take on that? Well, that might have to do with a person's ability to handle the material that's coming up. You know, psychedelics do what therapy does. They bring the unconscious to the conscious, but in therapy, you might spend months or years doing that and gradually teasing things out. Psychedelics have a few hours. So they're not always very tactful. They're not always very easy. Sometimes they just scan us and say, oh, here's some things that this person needs to look at so we can get better and say, here's that stuff you need to look at very quickly. Sometimes people not dealing with that well is a lack of preparation. You know, there is an, very, there's an unfortunate saying in the psychedelic community that says something like, there's no such thing as a bad trip. It's kind of a bastardization of an old saying that says even bad trips can be made into just difficult experiences when provided with context. 
but for some reason, people try to convince others that they're not going to be scared if they do A, B, or C, or if they take enough, or you know, you'll be fine, don't worry. And then when disturbing material starts coming up, people resist it. They think something is wrong. They think they took too much or something wrong with the substance. I'm not doing this right. I need to breathe. I need to look around rather than realizing that this is just difficult material coming up. And if they just ease into it, and if they feel like it, you're always a choice. But if they feel like it, they can look that thing in the eye and maybe it'll lose some of its power over them. You know, in every major study, they tell people, if something happens to frighten you, the best thing you can do is turn towards that. It just wants to be seen, felt, and processed so that it can leave you alone or at least lose a lot of its power over you. So it seems like some Per, some people's personality types might be more inclined to sort of resist what's going on, whereas other people might be more open to that experience. Yeah, it depends on how open you are to feeling what comes up for you, or if there is some information that you've already sort of worked through and felt. If you've been suppressing that and it's coming up for the first time, it might be rather disturbing. It depends on the person's history as well. What about as far as microdosing? What's your opinion on, on the microdosing of psychedelics? I think microdosing is extremely helpful for people. You know, it unfortunately has not been proven um, as of yet to be anything more than placebo, but even if it is, I say bravo placebo. You know, people do get mood shifts. People have dealt with depression, OCD, anxiety, traumatic brain injury, ADHD. People are microdosing for a lot of different reasons and getting phenomenal results sometimes. I think that there is a tendency now with a lot of people to, to sort of push the edges of microdosing and be doing something more like mini dosing. You know, I monitor a lot of online forums and Facebook groups dedicated to microdosing. And a lot of people come in after trying this for the first time and say, I don't know what's happening. I'm very irritable. I'm very sad. I've been crying. I get very anxious. And that tends to be people who are dosing on the higher end for microdosing. There is a space between a microdose in which you really shouldn't feel anything except for good, better, is not, or not as bad, and being in a psychedelic space in which you know, you're wearing your emotions on your sleeve and things are kind of distorted and you're not operating cognitively like you would usually. You know, when you're in a psychedelic state, there are a lot of things you can do. One of them is not pass the general cognitive tests you would get in everyday life because you probably wouldn't do well on it. That's not the space that you're in. So when you start tipping into psychedelic space, you tend to get, tends to be a more cathartic experience. So emotionality comes into play. It tends to provoke anxiety because you're sort of in that space between microdosing and, you know, like the psychedelic come up. So I think that people, if they do try to microdose, should start off on the low end and see how it works for them and then maybe increase just gradually. I've got a couple of videos on my YouTube channel about just that. As far as with the different substances microdosing, do you, uh, do you tend to talk about more like mushrooms or can you microdose MDMA as well? Uh, MDMA is not... Uh, it's not a good idea to microdose MDMA because MDMA actually increases the amount of serotonin in your system, sort of uses your serotonin. That's one of the drawbacks of using MDMA in any context that afterwards you're gonna have a kind of a crash. Uh, primarily you're talking about psilocybin mushrooms and LSD when you talk about microdosing. Mushrooms for most people tend to be a little more calm and LSD a little bit more focused and sharp, but that varies greatly from individual to individual. So. I usually tell people if they have access to both, see which one works better for you. 
But those two serotonergic psychedelics, the ones who act on, that act on serotonin receptors, are the ones primarily being used when people talk about microdosing psychedelics. And in terms of some other psychedelics, you know, I think uh, uh, ayahuasca has gained quite a lot of kind of media exposure over the past decade or so. Uh, do you work with people who've, who've taken ayahuasca and what's your take on that substance? Yeah, people come to me after working with just about every psychedelic, um, you know, in two and a half years. I'm not sure that there's one I haven't seen someone deal with when they contact me. Ayahuasca is a very powerful substance, usually used in a somewhat ceremonial setting with other people. Um, it can be done according to indigenous traditions, because a lot of people are trained by the people from the Amazon or by different tribes. There are people who are more modern facilitators who maybe don't have that training, um, but it's a strange substance. I have seen people in ceremony who came for the first time drink several cups of ayahuasca and have nothing except maybe purging or some physical reaction, but nothing psychoactive at all. And then people who are very experienced doing a very small amount at that same time, have very strong experience. It's kind of unpredictable. It's a very powerful experience and it tends to have more of a sort of a an indigenous feel to it. Um, there's more of a feel of history, ancestry, grounding to mother earth, that sort of feeling from it. There's a little bit of that in mushrooms too. You know, to me, mushrooms and ayahuasca feel sort of earth heart and LSD feels sort of head heavens. Are there other drugs, uh, other psychedelic drugs that you feel like are worth talking about in terms of a therapeutic value that, that we haven't touched on so far? There is a lot of attention being paid to 5-MeO-DMT these days. That is the uh, venom of the Sonoran Desert toad. So this is where this um, urban myth about licking a toad comes from. You don't actually lick the toad. The toad's venom is milked, it's dried, and then it's vaporized, it's smoked. And at a sufficient dose that will provide instantaneous ego death. This makes it vital that if you're going to be working with this, this substance, First of all, think very long and hard before you do, because it's a powerful, powerful experience that can knock someone off their center. But if you do, you might see yourself completely go away and just be existing as part of everything for a short time. Or at lower doses, it can just be a very powerful psychedelic experience, but that can actually knock people off their center. It's hard to see yourself come apart and be put back together in front of your eyes and not have it affect you profoundly. So. Some people have to sort of put themselves back together over a course of months after working with that medicine. And what you said there, as far as kind of feeling themselves dissolving and kind of merging with something bigger, can you, can you talk a little more about that experience and why it's beneficial for, for people? Well, to me, that is sort of a spiritual experience. You know, it takes me beyond just this body that I'm sitting in. Um, it's a very strange thing sometimes to think that everything inside my body is separate from everything else only by this tiny membrane that contains the parts that are, that are all held together inside of it. That somehow there is a planet that I seem to have plopped onto rather than coming from. That the air that I breathe and the space that we look at as empty many times are separate from me as a being on this planet, that there are plants and trees and air and lights and all kinds of things that are all different 
from this particular thing that I'm different from every person. There is in ego death, a sense of oneness, that everything is the same thing, that you're not a drop of water in the ocean. You're the entire ocean in a single drop. These kind of realizations can be profound for people. As far as with, with the ego, there's definitely attention being paid to, to sort of like just the idea that people's being too caught up in, in our stories and thoughts and beliefs uh, is sort of disconnecting us from, from uh, I guess, the world around us. Is that, does that come into play too with sort of this, this ego death? It comes into play with psychedelics in general. You know, I think in general, a lot of us could use um, being less tethered to reality for a while, you know, being unplugged from all this for a short time. This is the shaking the snow globe that Michael Pollan talks about. It's, you know, erasing the whiteboard and starting over. It's a reset when we get to unhook from a short time from this chatter that we have in our minds. It tells us that we are this one thing and everything else is something else. When you can get that separation for a while, you come back, there's a different feeling to you. It's a refresh. It's like rebooting your phone. You know, all of a sudden, your computer is working better because you restarted it after months. Greg, do you have any specific uh, stories that come to mind in terms of, say, people you've worked with in, in integrating these psychedelic experiences that have stood out just as far as how... Uh, the benefits that they gained maybe from the experience or the, the integration thereafter has really impacted their lives going forward. You know, people have realized that they have worse or better relationships with people in their lives and set appropriate boundaries based on that. A lot of people are going through life performing sets of actions that are based on something that happened a long time ago. This is what happens when we're triggered. You know, when we're very little, something happens in the subconscious steps and it says, don't worry. From now on, I'm going to have you do or not do, say or not say this, and you won't be hurt anymore. That's very helpful in the moment, whenever the originating event happened, but eventually it turns into the kind of the habits and patterns that we're all trying to change and get around. Um, you know, if your subconscious mind was in charge of your physical life, it wouldn't let you leave the house because you stubbed your toe or wrenched your ankle one time. It's trying to keep you safe, but in doing so, it's limiting you. And it's causing you at certain times to react to things in a way that doesn't display the reality in front of you. You know, we might take constructive criticism as someone being uh, sharply critical of us as putting us down and react to that. You know, we react to our spouses or our significant others in ways that are different than the way that we react to our coworkers because the context is different. A lot of things that we carry around as a result of childhood wounding that we're trying to change. So that happens. And there are some amazing realizations people have sometimes. Um, I can tell you one story that details have been changed, and this won't give the person away. Young man called me. He lives in the uh, Midwest. He lived in the same small town all of his life. He was very good looking, very athletic, very smart. He got great grades, always had the same friends throughout, you know, from kindergarten through high school, always had girlfriends. If you moved to this town, you wanted to meet this guy. He was one of those people. Now, a lot of people in his town went to work in family businesses and didn't even go to college. That wasn't their path. He did. He had a particular major that wasn't available at the local college. So he applied out of state, got a scholarship, and went out of state to college. Large university. He was there about two weeks when he realized, I have no idea how to make friends from scratch. 
I don't know how to meet women. I'm not good at walking up to people and talking to them. This is not a skill that I've developed in my life. I've never had to. So he was kind of panicked. He needs to learn how to meet people for the first time. And not long after that, he meets a guy that he likes. And this guy says, hey, you should meet my two friends. Next thing he knows, he has three friends. He says, these guys are great. They joke around with me all the time. They introduce me to their friends. It's just a really tight fit. And one day they tell him, hey, this weekend, we're going to the forest. And we're going to take mushrooms. Do you want to go? So I've taken mushrooms a couple of times in uh, high school. So yeah, I say, yeah. They go to the forest, they take mushrooms, and he starts becoming anxious after about 20 minutes. Much more anxious in 30 minutes. And in about 40 minutes, he realizes these are terrible people. They're misogynist, they're sexist, they're borderline racist, and they're not joking around with me, they're making fun of me. When they introduce me to their friends, they're doing it like I'm some corn pone hick from down south that they don't, that they look down on. He says, I just realized I had so badly wanted friends that I overlooked these awful qualities these people had and just didn't see them whatsoever. That's kind of amazing when you realize that that's what a lot of us are doing in our lives every day. We're putting up with things that are really unacceptable to us. And that leads to things like anxiety and depression. But those kind of realizations happen too. Oh my God, I never realized this. And it just shows up for you. So it sounded like he was kind of realizing these people's true nature or true kind of, uh, yeah, it's they're, they're who these people really are who he maybe was able to to get on without really seeing that but that was sort of maybe their negative energy was poorly affecting his health well it's it's the thing that happens during the psychedelic experience where things are amplified he was over to, he was able to overlook these things because he so badly wanted to be accepted by others and have friends in this situation but in this case when he took the mushrooms it just showed it to him so that he wasn't able to escape it anymore how uh, do psychedelics, do you feel uh, like their, their ability to kind of change, I guess, interpersonal relationships in terms of, I, I know MDMA uh, started off kind of being used in uh, family and marriage counseling. And I believe, I don't know if it's MAPS or someone different that's studying it right now for like social anxiety and I believe autistic adults. Uh, but what what role like uh, do you feel like psychedelics have in terms of our ability to sort of uh, relate to one another? Well, psychedelics almost always just show us what needs to be done, and then we have to do something about that afterwards. They shine a light on a concern in our lives or an area that needs improvement, and then it's up to us to make changes in that area. But it's a very powerful experience to have something show up so strongly for you and to be shown just as truth and to get through so strongly as it does when you are in that state. Afterwards, then it's up to you, maybe working with someone, maybe not to start doing things like setting boundaries, looking for the right kind of people to fit my personality and my wants and needs. Maybe that's in romantic relationships. I now realize what I need, want, and deserve and what I don't need, want, and deserve. So most of that work is done after the experience. There's a saying we have that says, the work starts really when the substance wears off. You know, that's like the old saying about yoga. The work starts when you get off the mat. So psychedelics provide us an opportunity to have these things illuminated. And it's up to us after that most of the time to do something about that. And in terms of doing something about that, you know, in addition to, to people like you, uh, like who, who do you see as, as people who you feel like would be good as far as 
being able to work with people in a therapeutic setting, like with these substances, like you mentioned with MDMA, uh, most likely coming, being uh, a viable therapy for, for veterans with PTSD. I believe you're, you're saying at the beginning, like who in your eyes should, should be doing these facilitative experience experiences Like you feel like it should be licensed psychologists, people who have a lot of their own experience with these substances, like who would be best to, to work with people? You know, I, in, in the aftermath of an experience, I often recommend people talk to a therapist. I'm very pro-therapy. It's been very helpful for me in my life. But when you talk about facilitating these experiences, there are a lot of underground guides as well as, and some of those underground guides are licensed uh, mental health professionals. Some of them are not. Some of them have indigenous training. Some of them have worked with these substances. Some of them have a knowledge of how, uh, you know, the in intersection of psychology and psych psychedelics works. It's a very delicate situation to be working with someone while they are under the influence of a psychedelic. Transference and projection can happen. Disturbing material might come up. There are certain things you want to do or say and not do or say in that situation. You know, I have a talk that I give occasionally. I think it's coming up next month on the guided psychedelic journey that talks to people about how to qualify a guide if you're going to be working with a guide, you know, what that's like to be in the eye shades and headphones, whether it's in a clinical study that's sanctioned by the government or whether it's with an underground guide. You should be very careful about choosing someone to work with in that situation. And if it comes to the consumer viewpoint, I would say first and foremost, you have to be very, very comfortable with that person. Do not engage with anyone who makes you uncomfortable, is very pushy with you, otherwise doesn't just make you feel grounded because that is going to be amplified in the experience. But beyond that, there are some questions and qualifications you should probably look for. Ask them how long they've been working with this particular substance, what sort of training they have, what sort of preparation and integration they offer, what the sessions look like and so forth. Anything yeah, else? As far as who should be doing it, that's hard for me to say because there are people who've been working with these substances a long time who are not licensed mental health professionals who are, I think, just as good at working with this medicine with people as licensed professionals might be. Clearly people that, that go to the, the Amazon and do, uh, or Peru and, and do ayahuasca with these shamans who, you know, obviously are not, not licensed, but have all of this just wisdom and, and experience that maybe isn't kind of recognized by Western medicine, but clearly that can be extremely valuable for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Greg, we're uh, coming up on to the end of the show, but any last uh, things that you feel like are important to discuss in terms of uh, psychedelics and their therapeutic value that we haven't touched on so far? I think it bears repeating because some people don't always hear it, that psychedelics will not do the work for you. I have worked with people and told them that in preparation and they understand it. And then sometimes afterwards they say, you know, I really understood that, but there was just a part of me that was hoping everything would be different after I took mushrooms. <laughs> That's not usually going to happen. Um, it might be a little bit uncomfortable working with the information you get after the psychedelic experience, but it's very, very rewarding. Remember, for better or worse, your brain thinks it would be a very bad idea for you to change. So in the aftermath of an experience, it's not unusual to see that maybe I don't want to do that. Tomorrow's a better day. This is a little bit difficult. You know, I don't feel that bad anymore. That doesn't stick out to me. But uh, the information we get during the experience is often the truth. At the same time, 
I don't think people should make many rash decisions based on what they uh, deem to be messages they get during a journey. You have to wait and see what's happening and see what the lesson really is before you do something like, you know, leave a significant other, quit your job or something like that, you know, move to the forest. Well, Greg, if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about your work, where would you direct them to? Uh, my website is psychedelicintegrationspecialist.com. On Facebook, I'm Psychedelic Integration Specialist. And on Instagram, I'm Psychedelic Integration. You can always get me at greg at psychedelicintegrationspecialist.com. Awesome. Well, Greg, I really appreciate you being on the show today. And for the listeners who enjoy the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And also go ahead and subscribe on whatever audio platform that you listen to the podcast on, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever other platform, go ahead and subscribe on there as well. Greg, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed our discussion. Me too, Toby. Thanks a lot. Absolutely.